Celebrate Poe, Episode 204, A Set of Poe. Uh, my name is George Bartley, and um, I'm glad that you're taking time uh, to uh, listen to this podcast. First, I'd like to apologize for my absence, uh, the lack of new episodes. You see, earlier this month, uh, I was diagnosed with a case of skin cancer on my ear and my back, and I was also diagnosed uh, with uh, osteoarthritis, a fancy name for a painful shoulder. Anyway, it took some time to deal with these problems, and I wasn't able uh, to do any new episodes. But that should definitely change uh, with the beginning of the uh, new year, especially uh, when we start the uh, second part of Poe's life, his more mature period of writing, a time when he became one of the greatest of all American writers. And uh, I've been uh, even working on Poe's relevance uh, to uh, next year's national election uh, with some uh, powerful observations that may surprise you. But I'll hold off on all that until future episodes. But for the next six episodes in the immediate future, up to and including the uh, episode of January, I believe it's the 6th, I'd like to devote uh, six episodes to what I think are some of the most interesting short stories of the period. Now, the holidays are a time for telling stories of holidays past as well as imagining holidays in the future. Funny stories and stories that deal with the human condition. We have Great Britain to thank for the tradition of making ghost stories a part of Christmas, telling horrifying and outrageous stories that delve into our hopes and our fears. In line with this tradition, Celebrate Poe is going to have some special episodes with some extremely compelling stories from a variety of sources for the next few weeks. Today's story is A Set of Poe by George Ade, probably the only substantial short story written with an Edgar Allan Poe theme. At the end of today's episode, uh, I'm going to give you a complete list of dates and episode titles for the remaining five holiday episodes. And uh, I'll try to keep each episode to approximately 30 minutes or less. So stay tuned. Well, here's the ghost of Mr. Poe. Hello, Mr. Poe. Greetings, Mr. Bartley. Yes, Mr. Poe, I just finished talking about the changes in this podcast schedule for the holidays. Today, the episode is about the short story, A Set of Poe. A Set of Poe is a charming Christmas story written by George A involving a man's wish to receive a ten-volume set of works by you. Well, Mr. Bartley, that is certainly a most laudable aspiration. Now, Mr. Poe, during the first quarter of the 20th century, it is said that George Ade, Booth Tarkington, and James Whitcomb Riley created the golden age of literature in the state of Indiana. And, Mr. Poe, you might find this interesting. James Whitcomb Riley, who was also known as the Hoosier poet uh, and the children's poet, 
was born on October the 7th, 1849, exactly the same day that you ended your earthly life in Baltimore. That is most interesting, Mr. Botley. Uh, Mr. Riley said that as a result, he always felt haunted, or as you might say, haunted. Mr. James Whitcomb Riley would be a most interesting subject for a future podcast episode. Yes, Mr. Poe, uh, I'll certainly do that in the future. Uh, And uh, I have some public domain recordings of him reading some of his poetry that I can use. And Mr. Poe, I also want to do an episode or two on Kurt Vonnegut, who was influenced by you was from Indianapolis, and uh, there's a cool museum devoted to his life and works in Indianapolis. I I have read that that, uh, Mr. Vonnegut is the most popular writer among young gentlemen who are trying to make a positive impression upon young ladies in their romantic profiles on the Internet. Uh, Such a participant is always asked, who is your favorite writer? And gentlemen inevitably answer, not Shakespeare, not Dickens, not even me, but Kurt Vonnegut. Well, Mr. Poe, I'll definitely put Mr. Vonnegut and Mr. Riley as podcast subjects for the future. Uh, But uh, we need to get back to a set of Poe by George Ade. And now the short story, A Set of Poe. Waterby remarked to his wife, I'm still tempted by that set of Poe that I saw in the window today, the set that was marked down to $15. Yes, said Mrs. Waterby with a sudden gasp of emotion. Uh, yes, I, I believe I'll, I'll have to get it. I, I wouldn't if I were you, Alfred, she said. You have so many books now. I know I have, my dear, but I haven't any set of Poe, and that's, that's what I've been wanting for a long time. This edition I was telling you about is beautifully gotten up. Oh, oh, I wouldn't buy it, Alfred, she repeated, and there was a note of pleading earnestness in her voice. It's so much money to spend for a few books. Well, I know, but, um, and then he paused for the lack of words to express his mortified surprise. You see, Mr. Waterby had tried to be an indulgent husband. He took a selfish pleasure in giving and found it more blessed than receiving. Every salary day, he turned over to Mrs. Waterby a fixed sum for household expenses. He added to this an allowance for her spending money. He set aside a small amount for his personal expenses and deposited the remainder in the bank. He flattered himself that he approximated the model husband. Mr. Waterby had no costly habits and no prevailing appetite for anything expensive. Like every other man, he had one or two hobbies, and one of his particular hobbies was Edgar Allan Poe. He believed that Poe, of all American writers, was the one unmistakable genius. Well, well, Mr. Bartley, I can certainly agree with that assumption. Uh, Let's get back to the story here, Mr. Poe. The word genius has been bandied around the country until it has come to be applied to a long-haired man out of work or a stout lady who writes poetry. 
In the case of Poe, Mr. Waterby maintained that genius meant one who was not governed by the common mental processes, but who spoke from inspiration, his mind involuntarily taking superhuman flight into the realm of pure imagination, or something of that sort. At any rate, Mr. Waterby liked Poe, and he wanted a set of Poe. He allowed himself not more than one luxury a year, and he determined that this year the luxury should be a set of Poe. Therefore, imagine the hurt to his feelings when his wife objected to his expending $15 for that which he coveted above all, above anything else in the world. As he went to work that day, he reflected on Mrs. Waterby's conduct. Did she not have her allowance of spending money? Did he ever find fault with her extravagance? Was he an unreasonable husband in asking that he be allowed to spend this trivial sum for that which would give him many hours of pleasure and which would belong to Mrs. Waterby as much as to him? He told himself that uh, many a husband uh, would have bought the books without consulting his wife. But he, Waterby, had deferred to his wife in all matters touching family finances. And he said to himself, with a tincture of bitterness in his thoughts, that probably he had put himself into the attitude of a mere dependent. For had she not forbidden him to buy a few books for himself? Well, no, she had not exactly forbidden him, but it amounted to the same thing. She had declared that she was firmly opposed to the purchase of Poe. Mr. Waterby wondered if it were possible that he was just beginning to know his wife. Was she a selfish woman at heart? Was she complacent and good-natured only when she was having her own way? Wouldn't she prove to be an entirely different sort of woman if he should do as many husbands do, spend his income on clubs and cigars and private amusements and give her the pickings of small change? Nothing in Mr. Waterby's experience as a married man had so wretched his sensibilities and disturbed his faith as Mrs. Waterby's objection to the purchase of a set of Poe. There was but one thing to account for it. She wanted all the money for herself, or else she wanted him to put it into the bank so that she could come into it after he... But this was too monstrous. Um, however, Mrs. Waterby's conduct helped to give strength to Mr. Waterby's meanest suspicions. Two or three days after the first conversation, she asked, You didn't buy that set of Poe, did you, Alfred? No, I didn't buy it. He answered as coldly and with as much hauteur as possible. He hoped to hear her say, Well, why don't you go and get it? I'm sure that that you want it, and, and I'd like to see you buy something for yourself once in a while. That would have shown the spirit of a loving and unselfish wife. But she merely said, That's right, don't buy it. And, and he was utterly unhappy, for he realized that he had married a woman who did not love him and who simply desired to use him as a pack horse 
for all household burdens. As soon as Mr. Waterby had learned the horrible truth about his wife, he began to recall little episodes dating back years, and now he pierced them together to convince himself that he was a deeply wronged person. Small at the time and almost unnoticed, they were now accumulating to prove that Mrs. Waterby had no real anxiety for her husband's happiness. Also, Mr. Waterby began to observe her closely, and he believed that he found new evidences of her unworthiness. For one thing, while he was in gloom over his discovery and harassed by doubts of what the future might reveal to him, she was content and even tempered. The holiday season approached, and Mr. Waterby had made a resolution. He decided that if she would not permit him to spend a little money on himself, he would not buy the customary Christmas present for her. Selfishness is a game at which two can play, he said. Furthermore, he determined that if she asked him for any extra money for Christmas, he would say, I'm sorry, my dear, but I can't spare any. I'm so hard up that I can't even afford to buy a few books that I've been wanting for a long time. Don't you remember that you told me that I couldn't afford that to buy that set of Poe? Could... Could anything be more biting as, as to sarcasm or more crushing as to logic? He rehearsed this speech and, and had it all ready for her as he pictured to himself her, himself her humiliation and surprise at discovering that he had some spirit after all and a considerable say-so whenever money was involved. Unfortunately for his plan, she did not ask for any extra spending money, and so he had to rely on the other mode of punishment. He would withhold the expected Christmas present in order that she might fully understand his purpose. He would give presents to both of the children only. It was a harsh measure, he admitted, but uh, perhaps it would teach her to have some consideration for the wishes of others. It must be said that Mr. Waterby was not wholly proud of his revenge when he arose on Christmas morning. He felt that he uh, had accomplished his purpose, and he told himself that his motives had been good and pure, but still he was not satisfied with himself. He went to the dining room, and there on the table, in front of his plate, was a long paper box containing ten books, each marked Poe. What's this, he asked, winking slowly, for his mind could not grasp in one moment the fact of his, his awful shame. I should think you ought to know, Alfred, said Mrs. Waterby, flushed and giggling like a little schoolgirl. Oh, oh, oh it, it was you. My goodness, you had me so frightened. That day when you spoke of buying them and, and I told you not to, I was just sure that you suspected something. I bought them a week before that. Yes, yes, said Mr. Waterby, feeling the salt water in his eyes. At that moment, he had the soul of a wretch being whipped at the stake. 
I, I was determined not to ask you for any money to pay for your own presence, Mrs. Waterby continued. Do you know I, I had to save for you and the children out of my regular allowance? Why, last week I, I nearly starved you, and, and you never noticed it, as I was afraid you would. No, I, I didn't notice it, said Mr. Waterby brokenly, for he was confused and giddy. This self-sacrificing angel, and he had bought no Christmas present for her. It was a fearful situation, and he lied his way out of it. Uh, uh, how did you like your present? he asked. Why, uh, I, I haven't seen it yet, she responded, looking across at him in surprise. You haven't? I told them to send it up yesterday. The children were shouting and laughing over their gifts in the next room, and he felt it was his duty to lie for their sake. Well, don't tell me what it is, interrupted Mrs. Waterby. Wait until it comes. I'll go after it. He did go after it, although he had to drag a jeweler away from his home on Christmas Day and have him open his great safe. The ring which he selected was beyond his means, it is true, but when a man has to buy back his self-respect, the price is never too high. Well, how did you like the story, Mr. Poe? Well, Mr. Bartley, that story was a bit sentimental for my personal tastes, but enjoyable nevertheless. And, and I do feel a slight sense of pride in imagining that an individual would prefer a set of my works to, say, Shakespeare or Dickens. I, I thought you might say that. Uh, Mr. Bartley, in order to partially satisfy my ever-present curiosity, uh, when was uh, this story, the story that you just read, when was it written? I believe around 1903. Ah, I find it most interesting that the price of what seemed like a most attractive ten-volume set was just $15 in 1903. Well, Mr. Poe, you have to remember that $15 was a lot of money in 1903. I checked on eBay to see what the price of a 10-volume set of your works from 1903 would bring today, and I saw one that was over $2,000. Yes, Mr. Bartley, uh, most of the time I barely earned enough to feed my family during my earthly life. So I was most amused when I read in the local library uh, that my copy of Tamerlane sold for $662,000 at an auction in 2009. And three months ago, uh, just a brief one-page letter from me uh, begging a Philadelphia editor for $40 sold for over $125,000. Um, Mr. Poe, it, it, it would have been great if you could have benefited from that wealth when you really needed it during your lifetime. Uh, yes, Mr. Bartley, but, but I cannot obsess regarding such monetary transactions. A farewell for today, Mr. Bartley. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Poe. And, and please remember, uh, those out there, please remember to uh, visit the podcast website, website at celebrate poe 
That's C-E-L-E-B-R-A-T-E-P-O-E, all one word, dot buzzsprout, B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T dot com. Celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com for show notes as well as a transcript of this episode. And check out the cover art for this episode at buzzsprout.com. A painting of George Ade, A-D-E, the year that he wrote A Set of Poe. Now, on December the 27th, Celebrate Poe will begin the first part of Silent Snow, Secret Snow. On December the 29th, I will read the second and final portion of Silent Snow, Secret Snow, a great story. Then on New Year's Eve, uh, um, I believe this would be, you see, uh, uh, New Year's Eve, celebrate, wait a minute here, celebrate Poe, we'll look at the classic American short story and occurrence at Owl Bridge. And on uh, January the 2nd, uh, celebrate Poe, we'll examine a great story with uh, the first part of Each Man Kills. And then the conclusion of Each Man Kills will drop on January the 4th. I need to go back on that listing again because I think one of those dates is wrong. But anyway, I'll be keeping you up to date about um, about when I read stories here. And remember that on December the 27th will be the first part of Silent Snow, Secret Snow, and December the 29th will be the second portion of Silent Snow, Secret Snow. A really, really good story. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.